Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? You guys all right? Well, welcome again to Crucible. Um, my name is Melissa, for those of you that don't know me. So I'm really happy to be here this morning to share with you guys. Um, so before we get started, let's just pray. I just really, I mean, I, I don't think we should ever approach the Word of God without really um, inviting His voice and His guidance and revelation. And so um, let's just take a moment to pray, to pray for one another, um, to pray for yourself, to pray for me. That's why I don't say anything crazy. But um, so, yeah, let's just take a moment to pray and to open ourselves to the voice of Jesus. Jesus, we acknowledge your presence here right now. And Father, we do not dare to come to your word without first asking for the spirit of wisdom and discernment to come and to show us, to reveal to us what it is that you want to say. God, not just to us as individuals, but as a community, God, what you want to say to us. And so, Father, I ask that you would come and that your voice would be louder and stronger than mine, than the voices in our heads. Jesus, would you come and show us more of yourself, of your heart, God, and that we would not be the same. Have your way this morning, Jesus. May your will be done. Amen. Amen. Uh, so as we begin this morning, as we typically do, I'm going to give you guys space to look at the passage yourself. And so this is Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. Um, so go ahead and take a moment yourself, read through the passage, and then I'm going to give you guys time to just kind of share with one another, and then we'll hear from each other, and then I'll jump in. Sounds good? All right, go for it. All right, so let, let's hear from one another. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, this passage is kind of heavy, so <laughs> I'd love to know what you guys think. should have asked you two weeks ago when I was preparing, but, you know, whatever. So we have Mike Runners. Who has Mike? All right, JP. Back here, Chris. That's you, Chris. All right. So let's have at it. Whoever, man. Hi. Hello. Okay. So I noticed that um, looks like three times where it was mentioned that it will be good for those servants who um, the master finds them watching or um, finds them ready. Mm -hmm. um, finds them doing what they're supposed to be doing. So that's something I noticed. Yeah. I mean, when you, when, when you see that, rep, that kind of repetition, that means you need, to, you need to, like, come in a little bit closer, right? Pay a little bit more attention. That's absolutely right. I mean, be ready. It is good. And there's a lot of different types of repetition in there, right? So the it is good part and also the be ready, be watchful. A lot of repetition in here. Jesus is like, you didn't get it the first time. I'm going to tell you two, two or three more times. That's good. What else? Irby. I think the thing that struck me is, uh, I grew up Pentecostal. We talk about Jesus coming back all the time. Yes, we do. And, um, yes, we do. And I feel that's something that's like lacking in the church nowadays. 
And so this passage is really like, he, that's our hope. Our hope is to be reunited with him. Mm -hmm. And so, many, so often we go about our business, our, our days, even in mission, without even considering that. Yeah. That's what's supposed to be sustaining us. Yeah. That's what's supposed to be motivating us. Yes. Is the fact that one day we're going to see him again in, in, in the body, like mm -hmm. in the flesh once more. And so that's sort of like what really struck me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I grew up Pentecostal too. I'm going to talk about that because it's true. It's that idea of like Jesus coming back. Jesus coming back. And, and I mean, I, I've been out of the Pentecostal church for a long time, but you know, you, you said that that's not as common anymore, hearing that sort of um, warning because it felt like a warning most of the time, right? Yeah. Um, and, and people have gone almost the extreme opposite of it, where they're not even thinking about the return, the implications of that, what that means now, what that's going to mean then. You're right. What else? Ryan. This is more of a, just a comment. You know, there's one part where Jesus doesn't say something, which is Peter. He says, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And I feel like Peter is all of us. Yes. Because I know you guys read this passage and were like, uh, who are you talking to, yeah, who, Jesus? Who's, yeah, who's it talking to? So, yeah. you know, I definitely want to point out that I think Peter uh, is asking the question that we all want to ask Jesus. Mm -hmm. Like, so are, are you really saying this to us or is it to somebody else? Or, mm -hmm. yeah, is it, is it me? Yeah. I mean, not to say anybody else. Is What do you have to say to me here? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and again, because of the, because there are things that he's saying over and over again. And so it's almost like, oh, okay, we need to clarify here. Like, who, who actually are you talking to? Because then does that mean I need to change some things or readjust or rearrange? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I feel like even before I got to that part of the scripture, I was asking that question. Like, who is he talking to? Because I know there's a lot of people there, you know? All right, maybe one more. One more. Hey, does it necessarily have to be so much about this, you know, apocalyptic end of days event that maybe it's, you know, could be more applicable to your daily life that, you know, sometimes Christ will actually come up you know, in a situation, in a conversation with people, and you have to ask yourself, do my actions reflect the ideals that I actually pur mm -hmm. purport mm -hmm. to believe? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. No, I, I think that's a great question, and that's, that's actually what, what I'm going to be talking about a lot, because it, it makes me think of Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about the, you know, when, when the Son of Man comes back in his glory to sit on the throne and to judge the world, and he separates the sheep and the goats, and he says, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And they're like, when? When did we do those things? And he was like, well, whenever you did it to one of these, you did it to me, you know. And, and that wasn't so much about, like, this future thing, but, like, right now, I come to you right now, every day. Are you ready? Let me go ahead and, and jump in here. So the past few weeks, you know, we've, we've been doing this series, so I'm, I'm ending the series um, the foolish way and looking at these stories of Jesus inviting his followers into the foolish way of the kingdom, all in direct opposition to the world's sensibilities. And today, we look at the call to be watchful, to be ready for the master's return. 
And this, too, is a call to be foolish in the eyes of the world. You know, Irby brought up the whole Pentecostal church, and, and I talk a lot about my Pentecostal background because, you know, I like to remember where I come from, and I like to, to, be, to remember that time in my life because it really impacted me. That season of my, my life, being in the Pentecostal church, really shaped me. And so as I studied this passage, um, it took me back to my days growing up in uh, Alpha y Omega. That was my church. And where eschatology, so which is also known as uh, the end times, was a major topic of conversation. And I imagine it was probably a major topic of conversation in most Pentecostal churches. And I would always hear people say, Cristo viene. Cristo viene. Jesus is coming. Cristo viene. You know, all the time, Jesus is coming. And people would quote um, Luke 21, where it would say, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Cristo viene. He is coming. You know, but the thing is that it was said in a way to evoke fear. And it was more of a warning. And the idea of the master returning was more about judgment. And it was a terrifying event devoid of hope for the kingdom to come. At least that's how it felt. And not being ready was defined as partying and drinking, cussing, fornicating. Like, that's, that's how people would describe, you know, that's, that's how you know you're not ready. You're doing all those things. But being watchful, being ready, really had to do with being in church as much as possible. And so Pentecostal people would straight up be in church Monday through Friday, Sunday morning, and Sunday evening. I mean, because the truth is, when Jesus comes back, I want him to find me in church, right? Like, let him, I'm going to be in church as much as possible. Don't matter that at home you act like the devil, right? But at least I'll be in church most of the time. And there was this unhealthy obsession with being ready for Jesus' coming. Like, Pentecostal people actually did care about that, do care about that, uh, maybe still to this day. But it was more about the appearance of holiness, just the appearance, and not, being, and, and, and not being condemned to hell. That's what it was about. Well, I have to admit, I was also a little obsessed, too. I mean, you grow up in that environment, you kind of, the fear of God was in me, I was obsessed, too. And I may or may not have read uh, maybe one, maybe two or three Left Behind series <laughs> books, you know, I'm just saying, maybe more than two. may have been like three. I can't remember. But I'm not going to give you an exact number because I know y'all will judge me. I know. Some of you guys did it too. I think my mom may still have the book. It's all right, mom. It's all right. She may still have it. Anyways, I know I'm not the only one who cared, who, who was obsessed. Um, I actually recently read this story about a man in New Jersey uh, named Joseph and his wife. And in this article that I read, they called them doomsday preppers. That's what they call them, doomsday preppers. And this couple had built an 8,500-square-foot bomb shelter in their home, okay? This shelter that could house about 100 people. Did you guys read this story? Anybody heard about this? Crazy. 
And they had been, this couple had been in the Peace Corps in Tunisia for two years. And upon returning home, um, it was the height of the civil rights movement, you know, here in the, in, in the U.S. And there was a lot of rioting in cities um, all around the country. And in their particular city where they lived, there was a major gas shortage. So they decided, we're going to build a home that can survive anything. They sure enough did, 8,500 square foot. They tried to convince their family and friends to prepare for the worst, but no one would listen to them. I mean, doesn't that sound ridiculous? 8,500 square feet, bomb shelter. And they tried, but no one would take them seriously. No one cared, but they went ahead with the project. They went ahead and did it. And over a span of decades, actually 40 years to be exact, this couple spent about a million dollars a million dollars building this bomb shelter and filling it with enough supplies for 100 people to survive on for months. Is that not the craziest thing? Unfortunately, unfortunately, 12 years ago, uh, the wife suffered a stroke. She had a stroke and she was told that she would only have about a year to live. And so with that news, Joseph, the husband, decided, I'm going to take out a half million dollar loan and we're going to live it up. In this last year of her life, we're just going to go travel, do and do and have the best time of our lives. But the thing is, she ended up living another eight years. <laughs> and between the cost of her care in those eight years, all the trips that they took, and Joseph not working during that time, he went broke. He went broke. And the same year that he went broke, in 2013, his wife passed away. His home went in foreclosure. And he not only lost his, his wife, but he was about to lose everything. Foolishness. You know, with every, with every passing tragedy, whether done by human hands like Charlottesville, like Las Vegas, or natural disasters like Hurricane Maria, the earthquakes in Mexico, my heart longs, longs for the return of the master. Now, I don't know about you, but these days I am uh, a little fearful to turn the TV on. I wake up in the morning, I, I hesitate to look through my Twitter feed because I'm afraid that I'm going to hear another story of evil prevailing, of people suffering in horrific ways. I don't want to see it anymore. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm tired. I feel weary, and every day I grow and grow more and more weary, and I have to fight against numbness. I have to fight against the temptation to just keep it moving, because if not, I will fall apart. I will completely fall apart. And guys, I don't know about you, but it feels like there's just not enough space in between tragedies, right? It's like there's no time to mourn, there's no time to, to grieve, no time to heal before the next shooting, before the next natural disaster. There is no space, and it just keeps piling and piling up. And I'm not even talking about the day-to-day -day evils and pain that we encounter in our city, in our neighborhood, in our families, personally. a lot. And I wonder, Lord, when will you return? When will you return and make this right? 
I think that it is right and good for us to ask Jesus to come. It is right for us to long for his return. But in this passage, I sense the Lord saying back to us, what if it takes a little while longer? Can you wait? And will you wait wisely and faithfully? And Jesus makes the call, be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning because the Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect him. And then Ryan uh, talked about the question that Peter asked, and I think it's a great question because I think all of us are asking this question, who are you talking about? You talking about us? You talking about them? Are you talking about everyone? Are you talking about now? Are you talking about then? What are you talking about, Jesus? We need to know. But Jesus doesn't answer him directly, but rather he goes further by saying that there are those who in the waiting are not only called to be vigilant, but also faithful and wise and, and, and making sure to carry out the orders and will of the master. And he says that it will be good. It will be good for those who the master finds ready for his return, but for those who are not ready, and for those who are even disobeying his orders, he will cut them to pieces and assign them a place with the unbelievers. Yo, when Jesus starts talking about cutting people up <laughs> and sending people to certain places, I mean, I, I, I tend to listen a little bit more closely. And so for me, as I was preparing for this morning, I wrestled a lot through what it means to be ready and watchful for the master. What does that look like today, right now, tomorrow? And I was really struck by verse 38 when Jesus says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. And John Carroll, in his commentary on this passage, he calls this the second and third night watch. And the more I thought about the second and third watch, it reminded, me, it reminded me of the moments in our lives when our guard is down. The moments in our lives when no one is around. When we're too tired to think and it seems that there's nothing to prepare for. The second and third watch of the night. And I asked myself, what does it look like to stay watchful and faithful in the moments when we don't think it matters? or maybe we're just not aware that it matters. I mean, I think all of us, you know, we, most of us have been Christians for a long time. Many of you are leaders. You know what it looks like to be watchful and ready when you're preparing for a Bible study. You know what it looks like to be watchful and ready when you're about to speak in front of a group of people or share the gospel with a coworker you've been building a relationship with for a while or, or to pray with someone that just experienced loss or to share a meal with someone is, who is hungry, you know how to prepare for that. That's what we do. We know how to be ready for the spiritual moments in our lives. We know how to be ready for the moments when we're expected to be like Jesus, to act justly, to act holy. We know. Man, and how I hope that when Jesus returns, he would find me sharing the gospel. Or, or, or being a good neighbor. Man, 
But unfortunately, unfortunately, that is not always the case. So a few weeks ago, um, we, I mean, gosh, there's been so many hurricanes. It's like, just, it's too much. It's ridiculous. I mean, at some point, I'm, it's, it feels like a joke. Really, Nate? What Nate doing in the, in the Gulf? Like, seriously, what is happening here? But during Hurricane Irma, you know, when all of that was coming out, and Hurricane Irma just took her time getting over here, right? I just feel like we were, I was stuck to the news, to the TV for like weeks, waiting for her to show up. Irma, that's what I called her, Irma. So, so in, in this time of like waiting for Irma to come, you know, I wasn't really that anxious. Actually, um, you know, watching it, I was more worried about my family in Puerto Rico. That's who I was worried about. I wasn't so much worried about Tampa. I was worried about Puerto Rico. And, you know, it, Irma barely skimmed through the top of Puerto Rico. I mean, they barely felt anything. And so, you know, now it was, it was uh, being... Um, predicted to come straight to Tampa, and so I'm like, oh crap, you know, maybe I should get some stuff, I don't know, buy a little bit of food or some chips, some water, <laughs> some chips, some plantain chips, uh, specifically. So I start going to the store, get my little tuna fish, I don't even like tuna fish, but I'm gonna get some tuna fish, I'm gonna get my little chips and my little Nutri-Grain bars, and I go to get water and there's nothing. Go to the next store to get water, and there's nothing. I mean, not even Fiji water. I mean, there is, like, nothing. The water is gone. I went probably to about four or five stores looking for water. And, guys, with each store, the desperation, the anxiety started growing in me. It's like, crap, what is happening here? You know, okay. And so, I, you know, I, I keep going, nothing, nothing. I mean, it's just no success. And finally, you know, I decided, well, I do have some empty gallons at home. I'll just fill those up. But, man, it would still be nice to have, you know, a little 24-pack or something. I don't know. So I had gone to Winn-Dixie, the Winn-Dixie near my neighborhood. And I went in there actually going to buy more tuna fish because Tom was like, what are we going to do with one can of tuna fish? Like, <laughs> you need to buy more tuna fish. I said, okay, I'll go buy some tuna fish. And so I walk into Winn-Dixie, and I see people pushing around carts with, like, these huge cases of water like these cardboard boxes with like gallons of water. And I'm looking, I'm like, oh. And I go to the water section, There's, it's, it's completely empty, so I'm like, where are people getting water from? And there are people who have like five boxes of gallon. like there's six gallons in one box, these people have five in their shopping cart. And I am judging those people, I'm like, why do you need 30 gallons? <laughs> there are people over here don't have one, and you got 30, and I'm like mad. And I, I just, at this point, I just given up, and I'm in line, and I see the lady behind me. She at least has one box, and I'm just like, let me just ask. I said, ma'am, are there more? Where did you get that? She was like, oh, it was somewhere in the back. I don't know if they have any more. And so I was with my kids, my three boys, and Elliot, who is Mr. You know, Take Initiative, he was like, I'll go find the water for you, mommy. So my kid just takes off in Winn-Dixie. Winn-Dixie is packed. He takes off, and he runs back. He's like, mommy, I found water. It's back in that corner by the bathrooms. I leave my kids, I drop my tuna fish, I leave my kids, run back there, and there's like all these people trying to get a case of water, and I'm just like, oh my gosh. These people were taking like five, six cases, and this woman's like, do you need some water? I was like, yes, actually, you know, I just, I could, just a case, a gallon would be helpful. And she was like, well, it looks like this guy over here is, is putting some back, because homeboy had 10. So maybe he felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he started putting some back. <laughs> So I immediately, I didn't have a shopping cart, guys, so I grabbed it. I have this box of six gallons of water, and I'm trying to run back because I left my kids in the line. And I'm running back, and I get there, 
and they're, they're still there safe. They're not acting crazy. And so I get my water, and I'm just like, this sense of relief. I'm like, oh, God, praise God, I got some water. So I'm walking out, go into my car. My kids are there, and we get to the car, and uh, I, I start opening up my car, and this man, uh, who appeared homeless, immediately comes over. And he was like, oh, let me help you with that water. And he starts taking the box. And I'm like, uh, I'm good. I'm good, you know. And he was like, oh, I can just help you. And I felt in that moment, this dude is about to steal my box of water. And I'm just like, I'm good. I'm good. And I'm putting my hand on the box. I'm like, I'm good. You know? And he's like, oh, okay, 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 okay. And, you know, he, he walks off really quickly. And my heart is racing. I already feel all this anxiety from you know, the past week of trying to find water, it just feels chaotic, like an episode of The Walking Dead. I'm just like, oh my gosh, what is happening here? And then this dude is about to steal my water, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, what, what is happening in the world right now? It's chaos. And this is the part of the story that I didn't share with those of you that I did share this story with. The guy from a distance, he was like, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean to scare you. He said, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. Guys, I, to this day, am so embarrassed by that story. I am so embarrassed by how I responded, how unprepared I was for that moment. I mean, I was being greedy and panicking like everyone else, and it didn't even occur to me that maybe I should offer him one gallon. I didn't even think to do that. I was just like, uh-uh, this is for me. I I'm tired. It took me forever to find this water, and my family needs it, and there just isn't enough to share. At least that's how I felt. And I thought to myself, what kind of kingdom am I preparing for? What kind of kingdom am I offering to this man right now? And I wonder what would the master have thought if he returned in that moment and saw me acting out of fear and not faith. I am embarrassed. This man, I have no idea his situation, but I could tell there was a level of desperation in him, and I didn't even think. It did not even occur to me. Maybe, just maybe one little gallon, he probably needs it more than you do. I wasn't thinking about that. Now, I don't think that somehow this moment overshadows all of the other moments of obedience and sacrifice that I have given in service to Jesus and his people. I don't think it does. However, there have been way too many moments of fear, selfishness, silence, laziness that have characterized my waiting. Too many moments. And how do I justify or explain that? When Jesus is saying we must be ready, wise and faithful at all times, that it is good for us to be ready for the master's return at any given moment, especially when you least expect it. How do I say that back to Jesus? Well, Jesus, I, just, I, I was anxious and I didn't know if I was going to have any water. And it wasn't right. And in contrast, think about Hurricane Maria that has completely destroyed, demolished Puerto Rico. I can't, I can't, I can't look, I can't look at the images anymore. It's just, it is too much. 
And it took me a long time to finally hear from my family. And I have yet to talk to my father. I have not talked to him. Everything I know about my father is from my aunt, who, you know, she has to travel like 20 minutes outside of their neighborhood to get a cell phone signal. And I know my dad lost everything. I know he lost his house. I know he lost his car. But to have, I have not yet heard his voice. I have not talked to him. And every time I talk with my aunt, I mean, she's, my aunt, my aunt is a woman of God, a woman of faith, and she is holding it together as best as she could, but she's like, Melissa, the other day I had to wait nine hours. Guys, I want you to wrap your mind around this because nine hours in line for gas, nine hours in line for gas, nine hours in line for gas, only to go to the pump when it was her turn and the gas was gone. And she said, I broke down, Melissa, I just broke down. I didn't know what, I, I just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do, I just broke down. And then she goes back the next day, four hours, four hours in line, gets up to the pump, nothing, wasted. And it's hot, in Puerto Rico it is hot. It is hot and these people are waiting in these lines. I cannot, she said there's chaos everywhere. No matter where you go, there are lines. There are lines, you're trying to get food, there are lines, you're trying to get ice, there are lines, you're trying to go to the bank to withdraw cash, there are lines. She was just, just like, I don't, I, I can't even sleep at night. She's like, I can't sleep, it's so hot, it is so hot. She's like, I can only sleep for like two hours at a time. And so your body is already tired. You haven't even had the space to deal with the trauma of the hurricane itself that people described it like a, a woman shouting at the top of her lungs, screaming, shrilling, that's what it sounded like. You haven't even had time to deal with that trauma. And now you have to deal with the trauma of getting gas, the basic necessities. And FEMA still has not reached my family. Desperation. She told me recently about a story of this, this um, husband and wife. The, the, the husband was sick and he died and no one could get to him. And still no one has been able to get to him and they had to bury him in their backyard. This is what's going on. This is what's happening. And yet... And yet, there are the people of God. There was a story about this woman, old woman, an older woman. In those nine-hour lines, she's going around and asking people, are you a diabetic? Are you a diabetic? And if they responded, yes, she was like, here, some cafe con leche. That's what she's doing. And another woman making hot dogs, passing it out to people. Do you see the contrast between my story and this? We have been entrusted with the kingdom. And we are to give the world a glimpse into that kingdom every day. A kingdom that is generous, sacrificial, kind, just, equal, where there is peace and courage and healing. That is what we're supposed to be giving people a glimpse of. That is what we're supposed to be offering people. And we must be ready to usher in that kingdom in and out of season when we're ready and when we're weary, when our purpose is clear and when our, our calling is uncertain. It doesn't matter. We need to be ready because for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And I know that many of you are laboring tirelessly to serve some of the most marginalized and afflicted people in our city. I know that you're doing that, and it is physically, emotionally, mentally exhausting. 
And I think of my brothers and sisters of color who not only are you trying to faithfully engage every kind of evil, but you are also having to come up against the demonic stronghold of racism and white supremacy in this country, in the church. A stronghold that seeks to question your worth, to isolate, silence, diminish, and too often kill you. I know that. And sometimes we just need a break. Sometimes we just got to stop because even though we are trying to be like our master, we are not God. And we can often feel like, I just don't have any more to give right now. I have no more to give. We are parents and we have full-time jobs and some of us are caretakers. Some of you are college students. There is a lot demanding our attention, our time. And then on top of that, we are trying to, to, to engage evil. Darkness. But this passage is also a reminder that in our waiting, we must also keep our lamps burning. And for me, this has to do with tending to our relationship with Jesus. Our passion and love for Jesus. Sitting at his feet, listening for his voice, allowing him to bring restoration and healing to our weary hearts and minds. We have to remember, guys, readiness needs to be driven by love and not a fear of judgment. I think of Revelation 2 where Jesus is speaking to the church of Ephesus and he says, I see your hard work. I see your good deeds. I see your perseverance. I see that you have endured hardships and you have not grown weary, but this one thing I have against you, you have forsaken your first love. We must also keep our lamps burning so that we do not neglect our primary call to worship Jesus. We must invest as much time in our own love and devotion to Jesus as we do in the work of our hands. We have to, to be reminded of who we belong to and what we were made for so that when the, so when the master comes, we can gladly say yes and amen. So that when we have nothing more to give in our own strength, we can remember the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work within us. Luke 18 says that Jesus tells his disciples a parable about the persistent widow to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Then he ends the parable asking, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on the earth? I believe that this call to readiness as we wait for the master's return is an act of faith. It is an act of faith. Faith in the kingdom to come. For you and I to have hope, for you and I to have faith, for you and I to labor on behalf of the poor, the homeless, the orphan, the college student, the single mother, women on the streets, addicts, crazy co-workers, young black girls. For us to have faith in the face of darkness is foolishness to the world. 
It is. It's foolish. But it is our protest against evil and injustice. Do you understand that? To have faith, to act on that faith, to love, to be kind, to be generous, is a protest against evil and injustice. It is our resistance against a society that would encourage and affirm living for ourselves, living for me and only looking out for me and mine. That mess that I pulled in the parking lot of Winn-Dixie, that's what the world encourages and affirms, to eat, drink, and be merry. And we have to resist that. We must resist. And we have to resist giving into weariness and futility. We have to fight against the temptation to grow numb. The deception of feeling compassion but never acting on it. We have to fight against that. We must hold on to Jesus. We must cling to Jesus. And always asking, what is your will? What is your will? What must I do to serve you? Let me invite up the worship team as I finish. In our waiting, we cannot hide while the world is going up in flames. We cannot go to our bomb shelters and hide and, and just wait for him to come back and to rescue us and nobody else. We cannot feel overwhelmed and paralyzed by the, the need because the needs are great and they are paralyzing and they are overwhelming. And we cannot be paralyzed by the not knowing how to respond. As we are the people of God, we are priests, a kingdom of priests. We are the people of God entrusted with the kingdom. And from, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from, one who, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And even if you don't feel like it, because I know most of the time I don't feel like it, we are the most equipped to lead and to respond in the face of tragedy. We are. We are the most equipped to respond to disaster. And guys, not everyone is. Not everyone is. I mean, when the president went to visit Puerto Rico, what did he do? What did he do? What did he say? He disrespected and humiliated them. He blamed them for this tragedy. He, he minimized their suffering. Not everyone knows how to respond in the face of disaster and tragedy, but you and I, the people of God, we do and we must. We should respond, guys, because we have hope that Cristo viene. Cristo viene. Jesus is coming. He is coming and he will come with a scepter of justice. And that day will be terrifying. It will be terrifying for those who have disobeyed, for those who have lived for themselves, for those who have brought oppression. It will be terrifying. But for those who have been afflicted, who have suffered, it will be glorious. It is good. It will be good.
You remember the story I shared at the beginning about the couple who spent millions on that bomb shelter? They were about to lose everything. But two weeks ago, listen to this. Two weeks ago, they had an estate sale. This man's losing everything, everything. They had an estate sale, and there was a couple that was hired to sell food. Uh, they owned this food truck, and they were hired to sell food at the estate, at the, at the sale. And Joseph, the husband, he decides he's going to go get some food. And when he gets there, he meets Victoria Martinez Barber. And he finds out that Victoria has family in Puerto Rico, in Arecibo. And her family had to be rescued from the roof by boats. And now they're homeless and they have nothing. And when they can get cell service and, and send word, the only thing they can say is we stand in line for hours for FEMA assistance that was promised but never came. They've been told it will be six months before they have electricity and water. And Victoria goes on to say, all the proceeds from the food truck is going to go to benefit my family. And so Joseph goes ahead and he donates $100. But then he decides, hmm, I want to show you my food storeroom. This man had dozens of barrels of food. Dozens of barrels filled with rice, beans, flour. You know what Puerto Ricans can do with rice and beans? <laughs> if you've never had Puerto Rican red beans and rice, you haven't lived. Rice and beans, oh, they could, they could make a miracle out of rice and beans. Stacks and stacks of boxes of non-perishable food, all kinds of toiletries, all of that million dollars worth of supplies that he had been storing up. Guys, each barrel, listen to this, each barrel, he had dozens, one barrel had enough food for 84 people to last for four months on 2,000 calories a day. Yo, they're going to be eating good for four months. One barrel, 84 people. And he told her, you know what, instead of selling the barrels at the estate, I'm going to give it all to you. I'm going to give it all to you and your family. And there's enough for your family and the whole town, probably, their whole neighborhood. We must be dressed, ready for service. And although it seems foolish, our readiness should be a blessing to the world, right? It should bless the world. It should be a gift to the world. It should be a, declar a declaration that Cristo viene. Jesus is coming. And guys, if our lives do not stir a hunger, a longing for the return of the master in others, because it's not just about you and I longing for that return, but us offering glimpses of the kingdom to come and that in turn stirring people, stirring the hurting, suffering world around us to also long for the master's return, right? 
Shouldn't our life stir, create that hunger within people for the return of the king to come and to make it right? From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. There is much pain and there are many tragedies that have occurred in such a short period of time and so many others that we don't even know about. But today, I want to say, Cristo viene. Charlottesville, Cristo viene. To the families of every black man and woman that has fallen victim to police brutality, Cristo viene. To those affected by the repealing of DACA, Cristo viene. To Mexico City, Cristo viene. To the victims of Hurricane Harvey, Irma, Maria, Nate, Cristo viene. To the victims of the families, to the, the families of the victims in the Las Vegas shooting, Cristo viene. To every child who will go to bed hungry, who live with the threat of being sold into sex slavery, I say, Cristo viene. To my son who is being bullied and every day questioning his worth and his value, I look at him and say, Cristo viene. He is coming back. And to all of the people that you and I are serving and loving, trying to sacrifice and labor on behalf of Cristo viene. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. As you come to the table today, I invite you to examine your own heart, to examine your own heart before Jesus and to ask yourself, in my waiting, have I acted out of fear or out of faith? In my waiting, have I given into hopelessness and weariness and forgotten the hope of the kingdom to come? In my waiting, where and, and to whom do I need to declare that Cristo viene? The Lord is coming. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and when he gave thanks, he, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this. And whenever you drink and whenever you eat, do it in remembrance of me. whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Whenever you're ready, guys, come and receive the body and blood of Jesus given for you.